0: Hello, I'm Julian Pagini and welcome to the first of my micro-philosophy podcasts. Each one will feature an interview, discussion, feature or talk, all no more than half an hour long and many coming in at considerably less. Like several forthcoming podcasts, this one features an interview I conducted for my new book, The Ego Trick, which attempts to unpick the issue of what makes you, you. The interviewee this time is Richard Swinburne, Emeritus Professor of Philosophy of Religion at the University of Oxford. Swinburne is unusual among contemporary Western philosophers in arguing that we each have a non-physical soul, so I wanted to quiz him about why he holds such an unfashionable position. What follows is of course highly edited, but I think it gives a real sense of where Swinburne is coming from and why I think he's on the wrong path. When most people think about souls, they have a kind of what we might call Cartesian view of things, that the soul is a completely separate and separable from body and so forth.
1: I do think that there is an immaterial constituent to ourselves while we live on Earth, which is the essential part of us. And in that, I agree entirely with Descartes. We wouldn't exist as the sort of beings we are, those to say, conscious beings without souls. I think being conscious entails having a soul. Not even God could make it conscious without souls.
0: At the root of the arguments is the idea that in, in some way physical facts, physical descriptions, essentially can't account for certain features of our mental lives. Not yes, sort of that's right.
1: but can't account for, not merely in the, fa- in the sense can't explain, but can't describe there are data, mental data, which are not taken account of by the physicalist. Uh, the physicalist often represents the dualist as, try, as presenting a sort of explanation of uh, why we are like we are and says well that's, that's not the sort of explanation we have these days whereas uh, I want to say the trouble with physicalists is it doesn't face the data. Uh, And the data, first of all, is the mental life to start with. We have thoughts and feelings and so on, and the occurrence of these does not entail the occurrence of goings-on in the brain, or conversely, if by some artificial definition of event you describe me being in pain as having my C fibres fire, well you can do that, but then to describe the world you have to do more than describe all the events, you have to describe the properties of the events. But then, of course, the question is, (laughs) what are the uh, event's properties of? They're properties of me, but are they properties of my body, or do do we need a separate part of me? And my reasons for saying we need a separate part of me are, well, if you say they're only properties of my body, then it would follow that, necessarily, if my body existed, I would exist. And that doesn't seem to be the case, because it is logically possible, coherently describable that there is a world in which somebody like me talks to somebody like you and has this body and has the same mental life but isn't me at all. There could be a chunk of matter with a certain mental life and not be me. So in order to describe the data you have to describe not merely what the body is and what the mental life is but whose the mental life is put another way there could be a, a world in which i have your body and you have my body and um there's something extra there and the only extra that can be put in since it's not going to be a truth about the physical has got to be a truth about the non-physical
0: if you go back to perhaps the most fundamental point which is that the physical description leaves leaves things out um you know going back to people like gilbert Ra people have Said that okay, that may be true, but the, the, the mistake is to think that what is missing out is any account of a, a kind of a substance. But it's one thing to say the physical account leaves out, you know, what it feels like, you know, the, the mental aspect, as it were. It's another thing to say that what it leaves out is. A description of another sort of ontological layer, another kind of substance. Why is it there must be a substance? rather?
1: Oh, well, we describe the world, it's a very natural ontology. I don't see how we could avoid it and ever since the Greeks in terms of substances and properties. There are things and they have properties. If you do it that way, and I can't see any other way to uh, describe the world fully, then I am a substance. I have properties. The world consists of things, substances, and they have properties. And I am clearly on the substance side. Therefore, well, the question is: Well, uh, I have many properties. I have properties of thought, properties of weight and size, and so on. And uh, some of these properties are physical properties, and others are mental properties. So I have two sorts of properties. And clearly some of my properties belong to me in, belong, in virtue of belonging to one part of me and others in terms of belonging to a different part of me. Some of my physical properties belong to me in virtue of being belonging to one part of me. So, so the question is, if we suppose that all the bits which make me are physical bits, in other words I am a s- substance which consists solely of physical substances, Uh, would we be able to describe uh, what happens uh, all the data? And the answer is no because merely describing the physical bits and the properties which belong to them in the sense of the physical properties which are publicly accessible wouldn't give you the whole history of the world and supposing that the mental properties belong to my body wouldn't allow you to uh, admit as a logical possibility you having my body or I having yours.
0: You you seem to take it as being very self-evident that if there are substances and properties that we are substances but actually isn't that question begging because a lot of people would say they're perfectly intelligible ways of understanding what we are in terms of subjects of experience, which would not make us substances, it would make us properties. And no, an analogy a subject would subject
1: like to experience is a subject. <laughs> the person that
0: has the experience,
1: the very word ex- implies it's on the substance side.
0: Ordinary language can deceive, can't it? I mean, yes. for example, the, the analogy would be with something like let us say it were possible to. It doesn't have to be a, a, the kind of computer we have now, which might sound far fetched. If it were possible to create a program which could create some self-awareness in the program, the program could find itself thinking, ah, oh, I have awareness, I must be a thing. In fact, it isn't. We know that because we press the button, we erase it. No physical substance has been erased. That thing has been erased. And that kind of analogy seems like a, a at least a plausible one for the self, namely that, you know, what we think of as the self, the person, is effectively running on the brain. In a sense, we are kind of properties of brains and bodies. Isn't
1: it? it might be possible to make a very sophisticated machine which became conscious. I have no idea whether it is or not. But if it did become conscious, then it would have a non-material part, a non-material substance, because there would then be a truth about whether some later computer or whatever was or was not the same subject of experience as we had created by making that particular substance. Exactly the same properties, once you admit that it's conscious, exactly the same issues occur as with humans and animals.
0: That view seems strange in some ways because one has to ask, well, where would this substance have come from? Where would this soul have come from? Because if it was automatically A consequence of the physical process of the complexity in the programming then you wouldn't need to postulate a second sort of ontological realm but if it's if it comes from a second ontological realm it's well probably what you need is some kind of personal god who's keeping an eye on every corner of the world
1: that's why you don't like souls is it (laughs) that's a serious point yeah Uh, I mean um, a serious point as to why some Modern philosophers who don't like the idea of God are so hostile to what seems to me compelling arguments for the soul. I can't explain what causes my fetus to produce a subject of experience, but it's a datum that it does. I can't provide an explanation when you make your highly sophisticated computer of what causes it. If this happens, we don't know if this would happen, what would cause it to produce, as I would say, a soul. Sure, in that sense I can't account for it, but still it would do so because the moment it's conscious there are questions about how many subjects of experience there are, which later subject is or isn't the same subject of experience as that, all the same questions arise.
0: But what seems like it's peculiar about the view is that you, you seem to accept the fact that if you were to create by synthetic means organisms as, say, complicated and sophisticated with all the physical attributes that we have then they would, be conscious, they would have souls. But that in order to explain how that soul gets in there, it doesn't seem to be an inevitable consequence of the fact you have created a physical object in that way. The only way it's inevitable is because there is a God who Maintains certain regularity in the world, has, has decreed it to be so.
1: Isn't <laughs> well, it? I have a chapter in my book, The Existence of God, The Argument from Consciousness, that I think uh, that if there's a God, he ha- has an interest in producing conscious beings and interest in producing a physical world in which they will learn about each other and interact with each other. So, uh, Uh, I think uh, that the existence of the conscious beings is an argument for the existence of God. But it seems to me there are compelling arguments for the existence of souls quite independent of bringing God. And uh, the arguments you are bringing uh, against uh, my position are arguments from we couldn't explain it. Well, maybe not, but, I mean, uh, you can't reject uh, datum on the grounds you couldn't explain it. This uh, often occurs in the, in the books on this subject. If there were souls, then there would have to be a mechanism, and uh, we had no idea what such a mechanism would be, therefore there, there can't be souls. But, I mean, the world is full of things which scientists have observed, and they have the slightest idea of how to explain them. The uh, explanation might turn up centuries later, but that doesn't cast doubt on the data. Once upon a time, they discovered that moving a magnet created an electric current, and conversely. Now, that was totally mysterious, how on earth could anything like be connected in this way they didn't say well since we can't explain it it doesn't occur they said this is one of these data which we've just got to face and if we can never explain it well we can never explain it we're not omniscient
0: I wanted to just sort of like towards towards the end sort of uh, perhaps try and um, broaden out a bit actually and sort of think how this locates because we talk about these things in purely impersonal terms but clearly belief in God a theist God even a Christian God is actually very important to how all this hangs together for you, um, yes. what, f- what fundamentally roots your Christianity for you, were you led to it by philosophy and theology or does it have its roots in something more
1: well, uh, one has a biography, that is to say, clearly somebody taught me there was a god at some stage or I picked it up from uh, teachers or something like yeah. that without considering philosophical arguments. So the answer to why I came to believe is I haven't got a clue, <laughs> but uh, the answer as to why I now believe is on the basis of arguments, certainly. I have a certain amount of what you might call low-grade religious experience, but I mean, uh, it wouldn't be anywhere without the arguments.
0: But it's quite interesting because if you compare with your colleagues, as you as you be aware outside of, outside sort of theology departments, very few people share the kind of views you have about souls and so forth. So people, people coming to this subject without a prior religious commitment very rarely end up where you end up.
1: Well, 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 this is a truth about 20th and uh, 21st, if you like. To uh, theology which is in a bad way uh, <laughs> in theology departments if you asked anybody before uh, 1800 they'd all say what I said uh, anyone of religious inclinations uh, this is a peculiar aberration uh, of uh, theologians and you'll be aware that Miss professional, systematic theologians have been enormously influenced by post-Kantian continental philosophy, and uh, that will lead you into an abyss of uh, confusion, in my view. So I think this is a peculiar feature of recent theology. The question of the existence of the soul would not be uh, in any sense disputed by any serious uh, religious believer before 1800.
0: Mm. I was thinking more the fact that, you know, psychologists talk about motivated thinking. From the outside it looks very much like motivated thinking in the sense that if you didn't have a particular prior desire, belief set about, you know, certain theistic Christian commitments, it would seem unlikely you'd come to the views you do. Now, from, your, from where you're sitting, it looks to you like the arguments are leading inexorably there, but they don't lead other people inexorably there No, but then the you will
1: see, I can also play that card in reverse <laughs> and say that the only reason why people today what stares them in the face is because they're captured by, by the physicalist dogma mm. current in our time. I mean, we can all play that <laughs> game, uh, and it doesn't get us anywhere. Yeah. No, I mean it's the arguments on their strength.
0: There's a kind of a gulf, isn't there, So a lot of people in sort of philosophy departments, people like you sort of like greeted us with sort of like curiosity, almost like people who still believe, take fairies and stuff seriously, and yeah, obviously there are some people like Dawkins who explicitly use that kind of language. Christian, what, how does it how does really feel like, and to be so against the yeah, current
1: I, I think you exaggerate, actually, really? the proportion of philosophers who are Christian believers uh, in America, there is a very large society mm. of Christian philosophers yeah. and so sort it's of the largest, as it were, interest group among the APA members. In this, this country, it's uh, I would put it at about 10%, mm. possibly 15%. There are quite a lot around here, actually, in Oxford. So I mustn't exaggerate, but, but that having been said, of course, uh, you're quite right, I am... Uh, in a significant minority <laughs> how do i feel about that well the truth is i like arguing and <laughs> it doesn't worry i mean uh, also of course i am very interested in the truth and i hope i can learn from other people but i think the arguments go where they do why do i think other people are in this situation well i can give a long historical account of this and i think people have been as it were overwhelmed by science has found out that uh, there are many other worlds and all this sort of thing uh, science has found out that we used to hold some very primitive beliefs which we now know aren't true and we used to be religious so uh, religion probably isn't now true which as you recognize is hardly a valid deductive argument mm-hmm. Uh, But I think people have been rather overwhelmed and therefore rather over respectful of uh, science. I'm a great believer in science, but one mustn't uh, attribute to science an ability to make claims beyond its particular field. Uh, I see people as having been rather overwhelmed by by science and some particularly bad philosophical arguments that have been around. But any philosopher at any period is bound to be taking on people and some of the best philosophers have been in a minority to start with. So um, Mm. It doesn't worry me too much, that fact. Good arguments worry me.
0: If you're interested in more details of Swinburne's arguments and why I think they don't work, there's plenty more in my new book, The Ego Trick, published in the UK by Granter. If you're living outside Britain, I can recommend, without fee or commission for me, I should add, thebookdepository.com, which matches Amazon's prices and offers free worldwide delivery. You can keep up to date with these podcasts and everything else I'm up to at microphilosophy.net or by following my microphilosophy Twitter feed. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.